Welcome to the Life in Science podcast. As a graduate student, I am encouraged to attend seminars where we hear about the research that faculty members and invited speakers are undertaking. Oftentimes, graduate students are afforded the opportunity to eat lunch with these speakers, and it is in those lunch meetings that we hear such interesting stories about these scientists' lives in and outside of science. And these are the stories that get lost when we put such a huge emphasis on the science and we lose the personality of the scientist. I wanted to start a podcast where I interview graduate students, postdocs, professors, and those working in scientific industry where we hear about their lives in and outside of science. We will hear from graduate students about why they are interested in science, their day-to-day lives, and the importance of their research to everyday people. We will talk to postdocs about their career options, what everyday people can change about their lives based upon the research that these postdocs are doing. We will talk to professors about the process of applying for grants, the importance of publishing their findings in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, and why reproducibility of findings and experiments matter. We will talk with industry professionals about how they apply business to science, what it looks like to bring drugs to the marketplace, and the regulation that it takes. These are the people, and this is their story on the Life and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan. I'm really excited to share with you my first guest on the podcast today, Amber. Amber, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the research that you do? Hi, so my name is Amber Habowski, and I'm a fourth-year doctoral candidate at the University of California, Irvine. Um, My research right now is focused on better understanding the molecular basis of colon cancer. Very, very interesting. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, where you went to school, what you studied, how you got into science. I'm originally from Seattle, so I'm a Seattle transplant now living in Southern California. And growing up, I wasn't really interested in science very much at all. Uh, My aspirations when I was little was to become a professional soccer player. And I I still play quite a bit of soccer, but that definitely is no longer my uh, long-term career goal. And growing up, though, I you know, was good in a lot of subjects, science included, but I never really loved science because I wasn't challenged. Um, I didn't really connect with it. And it wasn't until I had some very influential uh, high school biology teachers that I really connected with the subject and fell in love with it. So I owe, I owe a big thanks to the high school biology teacher for getting my foot in the door and opening up a, a whole new field to me. And it also, at the same time, uh, my grandpa had been sick with Parkinson's disease. And so I kind of got thrown into this, uh, into this realm of medicine and the research behind Parkinson's disease. Um, so that was, that was a big part of it as well. And then my uh, avid soccer playing days also kind of came to an end a little bit when I blew out my knee and then had a uh, ACL repair surgery. So I kind of got thrown into this love of science classes and medicine through Parkinson's disease and knee surgeries. And I just realized I loved being in that, that science field. And that encouraged me to pursue uh, my undergrad degree in molecular biology and biochemistry. Um, and then once, once I kind of started going to that realm, I was in the traditional position of, ooh, I'm pre-med because I like biology, not knowing, you know, what other things can I do with that. Yeah. And luckily, I had some uh, wonderful research advisors that let me jump into their lab as a, as a freshman that didn't know how to pipette even. Mm-hmm and was able to start trying some research. And just once I got my foot in the door, I realized I loved it. So the more I did research, the more I realized that was really what I wanted to do. And I also realized I really don't like sick people. (laughs) So being around sick people, I realized was not what I wanted to do every day. Um, And I also just realized I have a really hard time when people pass away. And so research seemed to be the better place for me. I could still delve into the biology and the molecular basis of things, but I didn't have to deal with sick people and death. Yeah. I'm interested in what 
when you were a freshman? What drew you into research specifically? A freshman in college? Yeah. Yeah, I think the big thing is that high school biology teacher drew really like she loved to draw big pictures so she'd take out a big whiteboard and we'd be doing you know whatever it is plant respiration or something and she would draw out these pictures and it was just all of these mechanistic steps that were so fascinating and so complex and I love just wrapping my mind around it yeah and so the just the idea that you could learn you could look at something like look at a plant leaf we're talking about respiration photosynthesis and it's a plant leaf you see it every day. You don't yeah. really think about it. But then when you learn there's this whole other level behind it, you're like, oh, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. And so I think once she opened my eyes to that next level of understanding, I just started thinking about it all the time. Like, oh, I'm doing my nails. Ooh, nails, skin, cells. And it just, you start thinking about things in a way mm-hmm. I hadn't really thought about it before. And so because of that, I was like, yep, I'm going in as biology major. I want to learn more about science and just how the world works on that small level. Yeah. So what are some of the maybe research topics that you got to be a part of in your undergraduate institution? Yeah, so I originally, in part because of my grandpa with Parkinson's disease, I was drawn to kind of more neuroscience side. And there was one um, advisor I thought was just so cool and I wanted to do research with him because he had kind of the only neuroscience project-ish going on because I went to a small private Christian school. And I pestered him and pestered him and he normally didn't take freshmen. And finally, he was like, all right, kid, like, sure, you can join my lab and mm-hmm. have a research project. And to my disappointment, he didn't put me on that neuroscience <laughs> research project. He's like, I got this other thing I need someone to work on. And I was low on the totem pole, so I just took what I could get. Yeah. And it was uh, neuroscience focused in that it was looking at dopamine, which is an important neurochemical in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was looking at dopamine in algae, <laughs> Interesting. which is bizarre. Yeah. Uh, but this algae actually produces and secretes dopamine as a defense mechanism. So say a virus or something attacks this algae, it kicks out a bunch of dopamine, which oxidizes and kills off that little part of the algae mm-hmm. and then kills off the virus to save the whole plant. Wow. So super weird, but the, the ramifications of it is if you can understand how these plant cells produce and secrete dopamine, you could in theory help people with Parkinson's disease or other uh, disorders that lack dopamine. Mm-hmm. So that's very long term, but my short term when I was an undergrad is I focused on just the cellular localization of that dopamine. That's cool. Yeah. Um, And then later on in my undergrad, I was able to be an intern at Mayo Clinic, um, and I was able to focus there on some some other kind of more uh, biochemistry type projects. So looking at um, different metabolism type things um, and different liver um, functions and biochemistry of that. So had kind of a range of different projects I got to work on. That's really awesome. So then what dis, what um, encouraged you or who encouraged you to pursue a graduate school education and how did you find yourself here at UC Irvine? Yeah, I think a big part of it was that um, internship I did at Mayo Clinic. So when I was doing research as an undergrad, you know, you work just a few hours here, a few hours there. You don't really have a huge amount of time you can dedicate to it. Um, so doing that summer internship where I was working 50 hours a week in the lab, I was just like, I love this. Yeah. And my PI was like, you know, you're pretty good at this. You could, you could go to grad school and do this. And mm-hmm. I just thought the idea of just doing that as my job was, would be a pretty cool thing. And so she inspired me a lot. And my undergrad advisors, who I was quite close with, also inspired and encouraged me a lot. So those, they kind of set the stage and I applied from there. And I knew I'd be moving to Southern California, just coordinating jobs with my husband. Yeah. Um, so I applied to kind of all grad schools in the area because there's quite a few to choose from from here. Mm-hmm. And UC Irvine wasn't my top choice really? really at all. So I just was like, oh, it's in the area. I'll apply to it and see. And when I came here to interview as compared to other places, I just kind of fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. It has such a wonderful environment of collaboration and the faculty. Maybe it's because they all live next to each other and they're yeah. neighbors. I don't know. But they just felt so welcoming um, and supportive. And mm-hmm. I really felt like, unlike some other places that were maybe more cutthroat, it really felt like a collaborative place where I could really learn and grow as a student. And I also found some advisors that I definitely were in, was interested in working with. Mm-hmm. And so it just felt like a, the right place to come to. That's awesome. So then tell us about your research and, and what you do on a day in and day out basis. Yeah, it changes a lot. Um, that's one thing that's really cool about being a researcher is you never really do the same thing uh, 
the, day after day. It, it changes a lot. That's very true. Um, so right now I have several different projects I'm working on, but I'm, as I mentioned, I'm looking at the molecular basis of colon cancer. And when we look at colon cancer, there's one signaling pathway that tends to have a lot of mutations that drives the, the cancerous growths and tumors. And so we want to understand how that signaling pathway um, communicates incorrectly and basically what that causes the cells to do and how they misbehave. Mm -hmm. And one of the molecular things that I look at is called RNA processing, which if you look back at our you know, traditional central dogma of molecular biology, you have DNA in your genes, and that gets transcribed into RNA and then translated into protein. And the protein is kind of thought of as the, the workforce that goes and does a lot of stuff in your cells. But we've realized that the RNA is immensely complex as well. So these mutations in the DNA um, can lead to cancer, but you can also have dysregulation of just that RNA. And so I kind of study that, that RNA and how it's dysregulated. And so to do that, I, I look in a lot of cell culture model systems. I look in a lot of patient um, tissue and data sets. And uh, the new thing that I've been working on, which is quite exciting, is looking at a model system called colon organoids. Um, and that basically is you take human tissue, so we work with the surgeons and pathologists to get it directly from the hospitals, and I isolate some of the cells from that tissue, and I grow them in a uh, kind of a 3D matrix type thing. So it kind of tries to mimic what the actual human body is like. Yeah. Um, and they grow them as little round, uh, round spheroids or circles. And they are essentially trying to replicate like a little mini gut. So rather than just having those cells sticking down on plastic or something that's really artificial, this tries to recreate what's going on in the human body. Mm -hmm. um, and so using that system, I can study that, that RNA processing and study you know, how colon cancer is developing and progressing so that we can try to detect things earlier and try to come up with new novel therapeutics as well. Wow, that's very, very interesting. So for people who are not necessarily so familiar with science, what is the importance of a project and how does following the experimental results sort of look like in a project and how do you know when the project is done? <laughs> if you ask most PIs, they'll say the project is never done, which it's is why <laughs> they uh, keep us here for so long. Yeah. Um, but I think a big thing is most of the work we do, especially on the medicine side, is we ultimately want to help patients. Mm -hmm. A lot of that means our research won't even have a chance to help patients for another five, 10 years, yeah. but we're really laying the groundwork to better understand these diseases so that we eventually can help the patients. Mm -hmm. um, so my project is kind of a, going in an unexplored territory that we haven't really looked at yet, but eventually we could find um, some new RNA processing type of things that might be biomarkers, and these biomarkers could detect cancer earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, so one example is right now you, you get your colonoscopy and you turn 50. So yeah. if you're 50, get your colonoscopy. It's really important. <laughs> yeah. um, but the thing is, colonoscopies, they're very expensive. They're very um, in labor intensive from the surgeons. And they're, they're uncomfortable. And people don't want to get them. Mm -hmm. So how can we better detect colon cancer earlier? And they come out with a thing called a fit test. So it looks at your fecal material and tries to find either some cancerous cells or blood or other things that could indicate you have cancer, but they're not perfect yet. Mm -hmm. So if we can figure out certain biomarkers, kind of like what my research is looking at, that we can detect in those fecal tests, then we could improve the detection rate through the, through the fecal tests rather than just relying on colonoscopies. Yeah. So that's something that, you know, your project, my project could eventually get to that. Mm -hmm. We're still a long way from that, but that's what we, you know, have aspirations that we can reach that goal eventually. That's super exciting. Um, let's talk about some different sci scientific techniques that you may use on a day, daily basis. What does that look like? And could you maybe, for some of the more complex ones, try and break it down for people who don't really understand what a lab looks like and, and what people do in a, in a lab yeah. on a daily basis. So I think there's probably two uh, main sides to the work that I do. One is what we call the wet, wet bench side. Mm -hmm. So that's where, you know, the traditional thing, you're in a lab coat, you got your gloves on, and you're moving solutions around, basically. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the work is what we call cell culture. So you're in your lab coat, you're working in a hood that's a sterile, clean environment, and you're growing cancerous cells or those organoids like I grow, mm -hmm. um, and you're growing those, and you may be putting different drug treatments on them or isolating them. Um, so that's one kind of side. And yeah. then the other side that I also do is bioinformatically. Okay. So this is all done you know, on a computer. 
Um, and it's for me as an undergrad, I didn't even know that this was a branch of science. Yeah. Like it, you know, I thought oh, computer science that doesn't have a lot to do with biology. But the more um, technologically advanced we become, the more we have this intersection between biology and computer science. Okay. And so for me, what this looks like is, say we have cells and we have, you know, cells that have one drug treatment and cells that have another drug treatment. And we want to understand what that drug treatment is actually doing. What we could do is isolate all those cells in the two different groups and then do what's called um, sequencing. So we can collect all of their DNA or collect all of the RNA and actually run them through a really fancy machine, also very expensive, <laughs> um, and get all of the sequencing data. And then we can basically bioinformatically look at all of that data and get an understanding of what genes are turned on, what genes are turned off, where there's mutations, a whole amount of information all about those cells. Mm -hmm. So rather than just looking at the, the morphology of the cells or how the cells look or how they move, we can really understand what's going on on a tiny, tiny little level inside of the cells, which is pretty amazing. So for those people who maybe aren't so familiar with science, DNA and RNA are sort of the instructions for how the cell is to act or the different um, proteins and um, different compounds that the cell must create. So you're able to, using computers, actually break down what's going on inside the cell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's, I mean, it's really only been in the past a couple decades that we've had the ability to actually do this. Um, if you look at like the sequencing the human genome mm -hmm. and how that project came about and how many thousands and thousands and millions of dollars it took just to sequence the human genome. And now we can do sequencing, you know, for a tiny fraction of the cost. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how far in advance our technologies become. And also it's being implicated not just in research labs, but in, in the clinic. Mm -hmm. So you think of personalized medicine and trying to see if someone has a tumor, what are their mutations that that tumor has. Yeah. It's quite amazing. That's really, really cool. Um, let's talk about your research and how it affects the general public. People maybe who might be listening to this, they might think, okay, there's a b big definition and a big sort of separation between scientists and people doing research and me and my daily life going to the grocery store. Um, but we know that to not be true. So could you maybe talk about how your research actually affects the general population, maybe there is a certain population within the general public with whom your research may affect. Um, so could you talk about that for a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the big thing is that idea of a better detection method for mm -hmm. colon cancer. So that's going to impact, I mean, really people over the age of 50, yeah. but really anyone. Um, and if you look at the, the survival rates of colon cancer and the prognostic rates of colon cancer, some of them are quite grim. So if you're diagnosed in stage one or stage two, so really early on, mm -hmm. you have maybe 80, 90% chance of surviving five years. But if you're diagnosed with late stage metastatic, you're looking at a 10% chance of surviving five years, mm -hmm. which is a huge gap. That um, and that, you know, if we can detect things earlier, you're going to do better. Mm -hmm. So if we can have these early detection methods so that people don't sit and wait until they really are sick to go to the doctor yeah. if they have an easy thing because the fit test you can do at home mm -hmm. you know and then you just mail it off so i don't know if it's whether it's people are busy they don't have easy access to a physician to yeah. get a colonoscopy but that kind of research to develop better detection methods can help people of all different socioeconomic backgrounds mm -hmm. um, and all people that have different access to medical care so that's a big thing um, the other part of it is if we eventually can leverage my research and other people's research to get better therapeutics um, and better treatments of cancer, mm -hmm. then not only can we improve the early detection, but we can improve the results and outcomes for people that don't get it detected early. Wow. So that could really help you know, people that are diagnosed in those later stages. Mm -hmm. And the stats right now were about 1 in 20 people will be diagnosed with colon cancer at some point in their lives. So it's the second leading cause of cancer-associated deaths. So it impacts a large amount of a large amount of people, even if people don't want to talk about their colons. Yeah, <laughs> is there a um, prevalence in uh, colon cancer between maybe different ages or genders or socioeconomics or different races within the general population? Yeah, there's not so much a breakdown that I've seen between ages necessarily. Um, definitely an age thing. So that's why once you're 50, you start getting your colonoscopy. Yeah. Younger ages tend to not be um, impacted as readily. But that's also why 
if it is someone with a young age, you, they usually catch it very late mm -hmm. because it's not expected that they'll get colon cancer. So later ages, certainly. Um, the socioeconomic breakdown, people that tend to be in poorer, more rural areas tend to get later stages because, again, they don't go get a colonoscopy. It's not yeah. detected early. Mm -hmm. um, those are probably the big breakdowns that I would say we've noticed. Yeah, wow. Let's talk about um, sort of moving gears. Let's talk about funding your research. Yeah. That's something that I think a lot of people um, who maybe aren't involved in the science at all don't really understand is what's the importance of the federal government and funding research? Why is everything so expensive? <laughs> <laughs> how do we sort of talk about this issue of funding research? And so how is your research funded? Yeah, funding is really complicated. Um, and in most, in most labs, the way it works is that you have the, what's called the PI and they're the primary investigator. Mm -hmm. They're the, the boss of the lab. And so they're like a professor. Yeah. They're a professor. They're a faculty at the university. They, um, they may teach some classes and then they have a research lab and a whole team of researchers that work for them. Um, and within that team of researchers, you have maybe some postdocs, the people that have already had their PhD and are still working, and graduate students like me, some undergrads, some techs. You have a whole range of people. And usually that PI professor is the one that writes a lot of grants, and they bring in the big bucks that fund the lab, pays part of their salary as well. Um, and that's where a lot of labs get their money. Um, as graduate students, we're also able to write for fellowships as well. So the National Science Foundation, the NSF, and also the National Institute of Health, the NIH, both of those offer um, what's called pre-doctoral scholarships that you can apply for. And I was lucky enough to get an NSF GRFP, so Graduate Research Fellowship, uh, fellowship. Yeah. and um, that is a wonderful program that funds really kind of the basic research. Okay. So even though my research is cancer-related, mm -hmm. they understood and appreciated the molecular basis behind what I was going to propose to study. Okay. And so I was able to get that fellowship. And that pays for my uh, tuition costs, so my PI doesn't have to pay for that. Mm -hmm. And it also pays my, my take-home stipend as well. Yeah. And then I'm still dependent on my PI for her grants to fund some of the actual research and the experiment money. So, but it's, it's, research is very expensive because you're paying for people's salaries. Yeah. You're paying for tuition for the graduate students. And a lot of the reagents we work with, you know, you can order a little tiny tube of a liquid that you can barely see and it can be $500. Yeah. So that's a, that's a big thing. And how long does your fellowship uh, from the NSF, how long does that cover? Yeah, so that covers three years. Okay. Um, and so I still have several other years of support that I have to seek out. And so I've been applying for other fellowships as well. Mm -hmm. um, and luckily through UCI, our school of medicine here offers quite a few other fellowships. Yeah. So they have some you know, additional supplements that you can apply for and achieve. And we've also been fortunate in Southern California to have some wonderful private donors and foundations. Mm -hmm. um, one of them that we've been involved in is called the CARE Organization. And they um, try to really sponsor and support underserved cancers. And so part of our lab also focuses not just on colon cancer, but a gastric cancer project. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that's been supporting our work. Um, and those are individuals that have absolutely no science background. Yeah. They are just inspired by a friend they lost to cancer. And so they do fundraisers. They um, come together and find worthy causes that they want to donate their money to. Mm -hmm. um, and we've been really privileged to work with them. And they've had a couple different visits to our lab just to kind of see what their money is doing and yeah. what we're doing. Um, and it's just really fun to have that interaction engagement with non-scientists that love and support our research um, and showing them what we actually do. Mm -hmm. It's quite a neat opportunity. That's so awesome that everyday ordinary people can actually make a difference and can contribute. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of times I think I interact with people and they hear about the research I do and they're like, you're so smart, I could never do that. And I try to always communicate to them that it's not the point of being smarter or whatever, it's we all can be united in order to, you know, stand up to cancer, to donate our time, our money, our resources. Yeah, some of us may, you know, have taken a different career path and, you know, are getting a daily education on cancer and how it's formed and how it's caused and how we can prevent it. But people who are just affected by this disease can still actually take an active part in fighting this disease through participation, through fundraising, through donations, things like that. So it's really exciting to hear that you're getting the opportunity to experience that. Not only are you getting the education, but you're also, you know, able to leverage um, 
what you know to help support um, people and help them as they want to give back in honor of people that they know, you know, and support you guys in your lab. Absolutely. And one of the things that's amazing is the School of Medicine here has quite a few different donors that, you know, they establish different scholarships and fellowships. And one of the funds I was actually able to use was a professional development fund. Okay. Um, and that actually was able to help sponsor a trip I took to the Netherlands awesome. um, to learn that really fancy organoid technique mm -hmm. that really no one in our university or in my lab uh, had actually been able to do before. Wow. And so we had... This is, again, going back to that really collaborative environment with all the professors, but we had one professor that had a connection, that knew a guy, mm -hmm. um, and he was actually the founder of that technique in the Netherlands. Wow. So they are now a world-famous lab, and he's incredibly amazing researcher. Um, and basically he said, yeah, sure, she can come, learn the techniques, come on over. And so I went there for two weeks and worked with their lab and their team, and they were more than happy to share their, you know, their tips and tricks and secrets and protocols so that I could, you know, not only see what they do, but also take that back to my lab really and awesome. do that here. Um, and I think that just kind of goes to show that not only is UCI very collaborative, but it's kind of a world thing. Researchers innately love to share what they've learned and what they've discovered yeah. because ultimately we all want to help patients. We uh -huh. all want to help people. Yeah. So even if they're in the Netherlands, they're more than happy to share what they've learned so that I can also use those techniques in my research. Mm -hmm. I think collaboration is definitely something that people who maybe aren't involved in science don't really understand why we collaborate and the importance behind it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think if you look at sort of the business world, like companies are very sort of protective and they want to hold yeah. their resources yeah. and they don't want, you know, to let people see their al algorithms <laughs> or their profits or anything like that. But you come to the science world and it, it's completely opposite. Yeah. You know, could you talk a little bit more about that? Maybe some other people you've collaborated yeah. with? Yeah. Like and I mean, a big thing, though, is you just look at people, why people publish. Mm -hmm. A lot of the industry, they may not publish because they don't want to share what they found because they want to use it to make a profit. But mm -hmm. in academia, it's not about making a profit. Yeah. It's about finding what you can, sharing that. Um, and I think, like I said, the collaboration here at UCI is amazing. And my project in particular, I, my PI is a colon cancer wind signaling guru, yeah. but she doesn't have bioinformatics or RNA knowledge necessarily. And so I collaborate with two other labs quite heavily that have that RNA expertise yeah. um, and more of the bioinformatics background. And so between those three labs, you know, I go to multiple lab meetings. We have joint PI meetings. Um, I get a lot of input, but I always have an expert to turn to when I need help. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's amazing to be able to work on a project that is sometimes frustrating, but I feel like we're able to address really novel questions that you couldn't just ask if you looked from one viewpoint. Mm -hmm. So having a really complex lens, bringing in a lot of different people and players, I think really allows you to have innovative science. And I think that's really where the field's going, yeah. is not just traditional molecular biology signaling, 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 the same kind of thought process, but is in bringing in really dynamic thought processes. That's really cool. I want to sort of get to more of your story um, in, in science and, and sort of your life behind it. Um, what would you say has been your proudest scientific moment so far? My proudest scientific moment? Um, that's kind of a hard question because I feel like I'm so early on in my career. I don't know that I've really accomplished much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think probably something that was pretty exciting is when I came back from the Netherlands, I was so excited I'd learned these techniques. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I ordered all the reagents. We spent a long time getting just the pipeline from the tissue, getting the tissue from the hospital to our lab which is pretty complex to do. A lot of ethical approvals, a lot of work with pathologists and surgeons. Um, and so I finally got tissue. And the first couple of times, I just couldn't get anything to grow. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, I'd work really hard. You spend hours making the culture and just nothing would grow. And I think finally I had one culture. This was probably, you know, several tries in and it grew. And I was just like, yes, that trip wasn't for nothing. Like, <laughs> I'm not a failure. Yeah. I can finally make these things grow. That's awesome. Um, and they kept growing, and that mm -hmm. was, like, the coolest thing ever. And, I, I mean, I still have issues. I'm still trying to further define the protocols to, to work with what I'm doing here. Yeah. But I think just knowing that you finally got something to work yeah. is amazing. And I think, I think a lot of researchers can relate when you finally get something to work after trying and trying and failing and troubleshooting. Even if it's a little small thing, 
that really isn't a huge thing. It feels like a huge thing because yeah. you're like, yes, I finally got it to work. Yeah. So I feel like right now I don't necessarily have, you know, I haven't won a Nobel Prize. <laughs> I haven't gotten any huge R01 grants. Yeah. Um, I think that's a big thing is just getting those little victories and successes to get your experiments to work. Yeah. I think one thing that maybe people in science don't don't understand is the complexity and even setting up an experiment. So I know this may get really technical, but could you maybe walk us through your workflow to create an organoid and mm-hmm. kind of shed a light on how much time and effort it takes to actually set up an organoid yeah. culture so then you can actually start your experiment from there. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's, there's two kind of funny stories I'll share for that. So one is just getting the organoids. Um, usually I'm coordinating with pathology and um, technicians in pathology, so they let me know, okay, there's a potential surgery today. Yeah. So I have to try to keep my schedule flexible, and sometimes they only give me about an hour notice. <laughs> so sometimes yes. it's rearrange your whole schedule. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, our medical center is about a 20-minute drive. So once they tell me there's surgery and the tissues come out of surgery, I have to try to convince pathology to act quickly Mm -hmm. and get that tissue. They have to process it, do all their normal diagnostics, and then they save the leftover tissue that would normally be discarded, um, and they save it in a media that I've provided for them, kind of a solution to keep it safe till I come get it. And then we'll drive up to the hospital with an ice bucket, grab the tissue, sign paperwork, drive back to UCI, And then from there, it's about a three or so hour prep process before I get that just in culture. Wow. Um, And so depending on the type of tissue, if it's a tumor and normal, I have different kind of dissection methods I do Mm -hmm. to isolate the part I want. And then um, I have to isolate certain cell populations I want. So we're doing kind of a dissociation where you're breaking apart the tissue. Um, And then once you do that, you have kind of some rinse phases. You have different kind of cleanup preps. And then finally, you actually embed it in that matrix. Um, You have to let the matrix kind of harden a little bit. It's kind of a gel substance. And then you finally do what we call feed them, which is where you provide them their nutrients and growth factors. Um, But the tricky part with the organoids is unlike a lot of other cultures that we grow, I can't just buy that nutrient and growth factors you put on them. I have to make some of it. So there's several weeks in advance that I've already made a lot of these growth factors and frozen them down. I have to do testing to make sure they're good, Mm -hmm. um, which is really difficult, (laughs) some of that. And so then I have to pull all these reagents. It's close to 30 different reagents I pull together to put into these cultures. 30? Um, And then once I do that, I put them in there, put them in our incubators that keep it at a nice temperature, a Mm -hmm. nice pH, nice... um, a CO2 amount, and then hopefully cross my fingers that the next day they're growing. Wow. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very long process. And from the, the day that you put them in the incubator and they start growing, what is the process then until you actually use it or do experiments on these organoid cultures? Yeah, so the main thing is right now we're still trying to, to get that process down. So these cultures should be able to grow really indefinitely, mm-hmm. which is amazing because some of these are just completely normal colon. Wow. So a lot of times you think, yeah, we can grow cancer cells. We can grow cells that have been transformed. So they have a mutation that allows them to keep growing. Mm-hmm. But normal cells, they just die off eventually. So these cells, we're able to put them in the right cocktail of mixtures and kind of enrich for stem cells that like to keep growing. Okay. And so right now I've been trying just to keep them growing. I've gotten them to go for about three weeks, but then they kind of start to peter out. So I'm trying to make sure I can get them growing really indefinitely and healthy, Mm -hmm. and then we'll be able to start doing experiments. But you don't want to start experiments too early because then you don't know, say you're doing a drug treatment. Is there drug treatment killing them or is it just... The fact that they're old. yeah. 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 So we're trying to make sure we have those culture techniques down and doing well. Um, the other funny thing I'll share is another project I'm working on. So not, not the organoids, um, but looking at a mouse colon um, and isolating different cells in the mouse colon. Mm-hmm. And this is probably one of the funny examples of you do a ton of work and you get a little tiny thing at the end. <laughs> and this is, you know, this experiment is like an eight-hour experiment where I start in the morning with mice And at the very end, I end up with three or four small tubes with a very small, tiny pellet you can't see in the bottom of it. So it's just, you got to hope they're in there. But you go through so many steps. So it's about eight eight hours. Wow. And you end up with little tubes. Yeah. (laughs) So for maybe some people who don't um, know a lot about science, or maybe they have like reservations on um, using animals in science, could you maybe talk a little bit of why? 
why we use mice in some fields of cancer biology and cancer research? Yeah, so there's there's limitations with every research method. So you look at probably the three research methods that I and a lot of other researchers use. We have cell lines, mm -hmm. which are derived from, you know, a tumor that was isolated in 1960 or 1970s. Yeah. Um, and those tumors, you just have these cells that are really transformed, so they don't really look like that tumor anymore, mm -hmm. but they still are cancerous. Um, but it's sometimes hard to look at the biology of that cell and say, this is what will happen in human. So we can try different drug treatments and stuff on these cells, but the results of what we do in those cells really might not be the same as what would happen in a human. Yeah. So that's kind of tricky. Um, whereas if we're using mice, we can try to be a little bit more similar to the human body and the human system. Okay. Um, it's a more complex environment. So rather than just cells stuck to the plastic with the media, you actually have, you know, different angiogenesis, blood vessels growing. You have different metabolic things. You have just different characteristics of the mouse that are kind of like a human. Mm -hmm. And what's pretty amazing is we can take human tumors and actually implant those into mice and then grow them and then see what drug treatments work. So if we, if we didn't have mice, our alternative would be try it in cells and go straight to humans, okay. which I don't think many people would be very happy about. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't want to try most of those drugs because most of them probably wouldn't work. So the idea that we can use mice and try things in mice and see before we go to humans, I mean, ultimately means we can help more people because yeah. we can more quickly say this drug's not going to work. Mm -hmm. um, but it also, you know, does have limitations. And that's part of the reason we started to look at things like the organoid system, which doesn't rely on a, a mouse. Um, it's just the human cells. And they also have even more complex systems that try to recreate the blood vessel network, kind of like a organ on a chip type thing. Yeah. And the idea behind that is to try to not use mice, but also to recreate the complex environment that mice do have. So it's tricky. I, I mean, I wish we didn't have to use mice, but it, there's not right now, there's not a reliable and easy way around it if we want to eventually help patients. Yeah. It's definitely an interesting growth in the field to try and approximate as close as we can to the human body without actually using humans. Exactly. And I think as we see sort of technological advances in computers, and we sort of see, you know, how quickly the internet has gotten these days, like we're able to as well sort of advance our technology in cancer research to try and approximate what we see in humans, mm -hmm. you know, without having to use humans, yeah. which then allows us to design better drug treatments, to be more precise when it comes to treatments of patients, you know, to really understand the biology of cancer. Um, and I think that's also one of the reasons why some of the reagents and um, things we use in the lab are so expensive because they're so technically advanced. You know, there's a reason why, you know, a little tube <laughs> with liquid in it costs, you know, $500. Yeah. And people are blown away by that. It's yeah. because we're able to be so much more precise, which we're able to really understand the biology of what's causing the cancer that we study. Yeah. And I think what also is important to remember, too, is it's not like researchers just willy-nilly use mice. Mm -hmm. There's a very um, complex regulation, ethical approval that goes behind it. Mm -hmm. So we, some of the mice we work with are probably more humanely treated than some humans. <laughs> so they're kept in very humane environments. They live a very cushy life. Yeah. Um, and everything we do has gone through multiple rounds of ethical approval. Um, so it's, it, it is a good regulated process. Mm -hmm. um, so, and even the tissue that I work with, we get you know patient consent. We have ethical review boards that approve how we're using the tissue. Um, so that's a big part of science is we try to be as humane um, as ethical as possible. Yeah. I know decades and decades ago, that wasn't really the case. Ethics wasn't really a thing. Yeah. But nowadays, it definitely is. And I think scientists are very aware of that and very sensitive to ethical issues and making sure we treat all animals humanely. Yeah. For those people maybe who don't understand some of the, the background of science, anytime you apply for a grant from the federal government, you have to specify exactly the experiments that you're going to do the different reagents that you're going to use, including if you're going to use any animal models. And you have to, in um, as precise detail as you can, explain exactly how you're going to use them, the number you're going to use, why you're going to use them, why you could 
not use maybe cell culture or things like that. So it's a very heavily regulated process in order to, you know, use these animals to, to further your research. And they have a lot of steps that you have to go to go through to show that um, you can't use anything else that you actually have to use that. So I think that's really cool. And maybe something that people within science, you know, that aren't in science don't understand is that, you know, there's a lot of regulation mm-hmm. and a lot of hoops that we <laughs> yeah. have to step through yeah, in order to better understand cancer. It's not just anyone who walks in off the street. You have to get <laughs> education, you have to get training, you have to pass all these tests, you have to get, you know, certified, you know, you have continual training on all these different techniques and, and things that you use. So I think that's something that I'm excited through this podcast to talk to more people and sort of unlock that you know, sort of mystical box that I think a lot of people think that, you know, we tap into in science and kind of help people realize how crazy regulated, you know, and how many hoops we have to jump through. Let's talk a little bit about what keeps you up at night. <laughs> I, I unfortunately am very type A. <laughs> I have a, um, a constant to-do list in okay. my head. So there are research things that keep me up at night, but I think really what keeps me up the most is my to-do list. Yeah. Um, but I am really fortunate that I'm a, I'm a good sleeper and I don't get a lot of sleep. So when I finally go to bed, yeah. not much keeps me up because I fall asleep quite quickly. Um, I, but I would say my to-do list. So as a grad student, I'm immensely busy. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of different experiments I juggle, but I also try to be quite involved in the school and different activities yeah. and outside of school activities. So constantly thinking of all the things I need to do um, is usually what's on my mind the most. But in terms of in terms of actual science, I, I tend to think in terms of big pictures. So trying to think of, you know, what is the ultimate goal of this? You know, what can I really achieve? I yeah. tend to think of the really big pictures and also the big picture from my life. So what am I doing next? Where's my postdoc going to be? Where mm-hmm. am I going to work in the future? What's my life going to look like? Yeah. I tend to ponder big questions a lot. Okay. Um, and then, of course, if there's an experiment that's not working, that consumes a lot of my thought process, <laughs> trying to figure out how I can fix it, how I can make it better, how I can troubleshoot it. Um, that tends to be something I think about a lot as well. One thing that you, that I noticed that you mentioned is that you're not just a scientist. Mm -hmm. You're not just a graduate student. You're heavily involved, involved. I've seen you at basically every (laughs) event that I've been to. It's like, oh, Amber's here. Um, What do you do outside of the lab? What are some of the activities that you're involved in? Some of the responsibilities that you have? I think a big thing I do is I do a lot with high school students. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one of the programs I coordinate here at UCI is the Cancer Research Institute Youth Science Fellowship Program. So we bring in about 20 high school students over the summer, and they work uh, in for six weeks in different cancer labs, and they do hands-on research with the mentor. Mm -hmm. Um, They attend lab meetings. They come to weekly seminars. They, at the end of the program, they presented a symposium, they give an oral talk and a poster, and they're really just fully thrown into the research environment, which is amazing as a high school student. Absolutely. So I oversee that program. Um, This past year, we had almost 200 applicants to read through. And then once we pick our applicants that are going to come and be a part of the program, we have to choose labs. I coordinate the seminars. Um, I hosted a high school student myself that I worked with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that takes quite a bit of bandwidth in the summer and outside of the summer prepping for it. Yeah. And then I've also been involved in um, law science fairs, so judging science projects for high school students. Okay. It's actually been cool this past year. Some of the students that applied, I rec- remembered them from the uh, from the science fairs. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so that was fun. Um, and I've also been involved with FIRST Robotics because I did FIRST Robotics as a high school student. Okay. And so I've been back to be a volunteer and a judge for that. Wow. Um, so a lot of work with high school students. And then I also am involved in the grad council here at UCI. So I help host a variety of different events for UCI. Um, and then I also, on my free time, play soccer. So I actually play for the club team with all the undergrads. <laughs> and uh, they call me the mom or the grandma on the team yeah, sometimes. But it's cool. fun. <laughs> keeps me active. Um, And I I find the busier I am, the more productive I am. So I usually have a pretty tightly scheduled day, but Mm -hmm. that allows me to get a lot done and be focused on what I need to get done rather than wasting my time. Why are you so involved outside of science? What sort of drives you? Um, I think 
a big part of it is I'm really good at planning things. Okay. So I like to just, yeah, I'll do that. I'll plan it. I mean, I'm probably really bad at saying no. That's part of it. So then you develop that reputation and people ask you to do more things. Yeah. But I just feel like I don't want to be stuck in a lab and stuffy. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I'm a good community member, not just not just a scientist. Yeah. And so I want to make sure I'm well balanced. And I think that drives me to do things not, and not just be limited to my research, but mm-hmm. try to see how else I can help. Um, and so along the same lines that I love giving talks to the public. So I've done that several different times. I've done several elevator pitch competitions and just trying to get outside the lab and share my work, but then also just see how else I can help and be a, be a citizen of the world. Yeah. That's really exciting. So you mentioned when we talked about, you know, sort of what kept you up that night, you talked a lot about the big picture and sort of your thoughts on, you know, where you want to work, where you want to do your postdoc. Let's talk more about that. What does that <laughs> look like for you? Yeah, that's complex. Um, it, I still have probably another three years okay. until I'm there. So I don't have to really have a complete plan yet. Yeah. But my, my ultimate goal is to go into academic research. So to be a professor and have a lab, um, I think that's really my goal. That okay. My mind may change, but for now, that's that's what I'm going for. Yeah. Um, but that means I'll go and do a postdoc. So I'll go work in someone else's lab. Um, and I think the field I want to stay in is definitely cancer research. Okay. And I'm really excited by just RNA. So not necessarily colon cancer, not necessarily RNA processing, but I think I want to stay in that RNA and cancer fields. Okay. Um, so we'll see what that looks like. Yeah. But there's a lot of unknowns. You have a lot of options to you. Um, as a scientist, it's quite fun because English is the language of science to yeah. some extent, um, fortunately for us. So if I want to go work in Europe and go work in you know, the Netherlands, if I want to go there, everything's mm-hmm. in English. So I do have mobility to move where I want and try different things as well. That's very exciting. So what does sort of that timeline look like for you in a perfect world from now until, you know, you become a faculty member at an institution? Yeah, it's becoming harder and harder to achieve that goal. Yeah. <laughs> but I think now, you know, I'll finish up in about three years. Okay. And then most postdoc positions, I would say, are around three-ish years as well. Okay. So if I'm lucky, I could do one postdoc and then go to an academic position. Mm-hmm. Um so you're looking six, seven years from now, maybe wow. going into an academic position. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'd be that lucky. So maybe I could end up doing a second postdoc or doing a longer postdoc. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe I won't get a spot in academia and I just go to industry. You yeah. know, that could be it too. So there's, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, and especially as our funding situation isn't as great, there tends to not be as many open faculty positions because they're just not as much money. They're not hiring as many PIs because the PIs can't get grants. Mm-hmm. And so if that situation stays the same, it just becomes harder and harder for new, younger scientists like myself to get faculty positions. Yeah. So we'll see how that, how that works out for me. How important in this whole process of becoming a scientist and a graduate student and looking at forward to your future goals is sort of networking and connecting with other scientists and also connecting with the general public? I would say it's huge. Um, For one thing, if you think of how do you arrange that postdoc position, it's Mm -hmm. not like graduate school. Graduate school, you fill out your application, you mail it in, a review committee looks at it, they call you to interview. But for postdoc, it's about who you know. There's not a formal application process in most cases. So it's who does your PI know? Who did you meet at that conference one time that you thought was cool and you followed up with him? Um, So that's a big thing is networking to find your postdoc position. But I think also just networking to start new projects, whether you're at a research conference that scientists, you know, love to go to. And you're like, oh, so-and-so has this awesome poster. They did this new technique. I bet if they did that and I did this and we did this together, that'd be really cool. Mm -hmm. New grant proposal right there. Okay. So that's a big thing is just trying to network, build collaborations. Uh, But networking is definitely huge and I think plays a big role in just how successful you can be as a scientist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And networking with the public, too, I think is also important just to know that our research is our research matters. Yeah. We're doing good things. We're trying to help people. Um, And I think you don't ever want to have a a big gap between science and society. That's not the goal. You want to have a bridge Mm -hmm. so that scientists can actively communicate with the public and the public can actively communicate and say, hey, what are you doing over there? Yeah. I think just sharing information, I think, is really important. I definitely like that. 
talking a little bit more about networking, could you maybe talk about some people that have helped you get to where you are currently in science? Yeah, I think I'm really lucky that I have a wonderful PI that's a very good model for networking and collaboration. Mm -hmm. So being with her has been really helpful. And yeah. I was at a conference with her this past summer and she goes, oh, I got to meet, I got to introduce you to everybody. You got to meet all these people. Yeah. Um, and so I just got to meet a huge amount of people. And since, you know, they already know her, I just would kind of get an automatic in. That's so awesome. that, that is really helpful. She's been amazing with that. Um, another thing that's been really helpful is UCI has a wonderful grad program. Um, it's called GPS Biomed, and they offer all kinds of networking and different workshops that we're able to take as grad students that really help facilitate and train us not, you know, on the research side, but on that networking and career development side. Mm -hmm. And probably the last thing was a uh, year and a half or a little over a year fellowship that I did um, through AAAS, which is the American Advancement, wait, what is it? American Association for the Advancement of Science. There we go. Um, and I, they had a program called ELIS, which was Emerging Leaders in Science and Society. Mm -hmm. um, and we, through that, basically addressed some complex societal problems and really tried to bridge that gap between science and society and policy. Yeah. So really looking at things from that policy lens. Um, and it was a wonderful but also very time-consuming process. But through that, I had some really wonderful mentors that really taught me to network. Okay. And I think before that, you know, I never had a business card. I never would just go up and cold call people and talk to people, but that project required me to. Yeah. And it was also working people still in the science discipline, but outside of my expertise. And I would still cold call them, have informational interviews. And I think just that, being pushed into that, um, and then being mentored by the program leaders there was a huge opportunity. Yeah. And I think really helped me grow in my networking abilities. I only have a couple more questions um, for you. Thank you so much for taking the time and, um, you know, really helping to sort of bridge that, that gap between, you know, the public and people in the science community. My last question would be, using the results of your research, what is one thing that lis listeners can do differently tomorrow in their daily lives? I think the first thing is if you are over 50, please get a colonoscopy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that is that is the biggest takeaway I can, I can stress. Mm -hmm. um, but I think also just kind of on a general science level is once you start to understand the molecular basis and how complex things are around you, the world's a lot more beautiful yeah. in a way. So I think... Maybe just, you know, if you're stressed, you know, you just feel like nothing's going right, just think about the molecular mechanism of what's going on and know that your body is awesome. Yeah. You're like, your body is crazy amazing. And just knowing all the processes that are going on, you know, just as you're sitting there, just as you're, you know, moping about or whatever you're doing, like your body's working really hard for you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's kind of amazing. And it, yeah. it just kind of makes you feel special. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a that's a good thing is your body's pretty cool. <laughs> I definitely agree. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us. And if people want to contact you, maybe to talk more about your research or, you know, maybe even to possibly give donations to you or anything like that, how can they uh, get a hold of you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my email address is Habowski, H-A-B-O-W-S-K-I at U-C-I dot E-D-U. So, and you can also look up the Waterman Lab. We have okay. a lab website. Um, but yeah, you can definitely find me that way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank and you, Stefan. Have a wonderful day. Awesome.